can go ahead and turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Haggai chapter 2. We'll be finishing up the book of Haggai this morning. So last week we began the book of Haggai, and this week we will bring the book of Haggai to a close. And we saw last week the importance of not only studying the Old Testament, but the New. That it's important to not only study that which is in the New Testament, which is revealed and fulfilled in Christ, but to go back to the Old Testament and see and understand what God's Word says to us through the Old Testament. And we looked at the book of Haggai, which is a minor prophet, one of the 12 minor prophets. And this book is written towards the end of the Old Testament, towards the end of the people of Israel, that they have written to a people that are returning from their exile in Babylon. They've been commissioned by a pagan king to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed But as we saw last week, because of opposition, because of sin within their own hearts, they had stopped the building of the house of the Lord, right? We saw last week how they chose rather to build their own houses, to make their own houses grand instead of building the house of the Lord, the house that God had commissioned them to build. They built their own homes, their own kingdoms, not the house of the Lord. And so we saw last week how the curses of the old covenant had begun to fall on them, right? Famine and barrenness in the land. There is all these pestilence that are coming upon the people because they had not obeyed the word of the Lord. That if they would have obeyed, right? God promised that they would be blessed. They would be in a land flowing with milk and honey. But as we saw, they disobeyed and therefore were cursed. And so just like Adam in the garden, the people of Israel had failed in their temple building commission. But in chapter one, we saw that the Lord through the prophet stirs up the people for this work by his word and spirit and the promise of his presence to begin this work again of temple building. And we saw last week how this pointed beyond itself to Christ and his church. This points beyond the physical temple to the work of Christ And his people fulfilling the great commission, this work and mission of the church, proclaiming the gospel, being continually strengthened by the promised presence of Christ, God's gospel going to the ends of the earth, his house being built. But as we turn this morning to Haggai chapter two, we see that there is again discouragement and sin in the people of Israel. There is discouragement and sin in the people of Israel. They are discouraged, as we'll see this morning, by the size and the glory of the temple that they are building. They see it externally, and they are discouraged and dismayed at the size and glory of this temple. We'll see also how their own sin and uncleanliness defiles the very temple that they are seeking to build, the place where God dwelt on the earth. And we also see that they have no king by which to lead them in this commission to build this great temple. And so as we go through Haggai chapter 2 today, we're going to see these three words from the prophet. And it really reveals to us the great need of the people and really our great need this morning. That we'll see in these three words from the prophet in Haggai chapter 2 
the need for a better temple, a greater glory than the glory of the old physical temple. The need for a new covenant that can truly cleanse the people, not externally, but internally. And the need for a greater king that can defeat their enemies and lead the people to build the house of the Lord. And we'll see as we go through this morning that these three words find their fulfillment, not in some physical temple, but in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true temple of God, the mediator of the new covenant, the true king of God's people. So I'm going to read Haggai chapter two this morning. I'll pray for us and then we will look to God's word. I'll begin at verse one and read till the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. This is one month after the previous chapter. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you? who saw this house in its former glory. How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. We see now the second word from the prophet Haggai. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. 
Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let us pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your holy, infallible, and inerrant word that is sufficient for us this morning, that we have no need of any other word from you, but we have in your scripture the word that we need this morning. And so as we hear the word of the prophet Haggai spoken to the people of Israel, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, we might hear what you have for us this morning, that we are in great need and we need your help by your spirit to see and understand the truths of your word, to apply them to our lives and to look the Christ, the one who has saved us from our sins. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at four things this morning. We're going to look at the three words from the prophet Haggai, and then we're going to look at the fulfillment in Christ. So the first word we see this morning in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, we're going to see the promise of a new and better temple. The promise of a new and better temple. That, as I said, chapter 2 takes place one month later, and we see the word of the Lord returns to the people. We see that they have begun to work on the house of the Lord, but it is not what the people expected. They've begun this work, right? Last week they were spurred on to this work to obey the Lord in the building of the Lord's house. But instead of being joyful over this work, we see that it is not what they expected. That as the people are building the temple, they look around and they realize that this temple is not as great and glorious as they thought it was going to be. Maybe some of you have maybe tried to recreate something from a Pinterest page or something like that. And you see this great picture, or maybe you did a home renovation project. You worked on your kitchen, and you had this ideal picture of what you thought this project would look like. And you get halfway through it, and you start saying, this doesn't look as good as the picture, right? This doesn't look as good as I thought it was going to be. And imagine that, but times ten. That the, the temple in the Old Testament was the center of worship. It was the thing that the people were to prioritize because it was where God dwelt among them. And they're building this temple and they're seeing that it looks nothing like the temple that Solomon had built years before. The one that had been destroyed. That this second temple 
is not only smaller in comparison, but it lacks the ornament that Solomon's temple had. Solomon's temple was covered in silver and in gold. And you go to the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, and it says that as the temple, as the foundation of this temple was being built, some people cried out with praise and joy. They were glad over this work. But it says others who remembered the former glory of the temple cried out in weeping. And they were, their cries were so loud that the people could not distinguish between the cries of joy and the cries of sadness. And the people we see are disappointed. They're discouraged in the work that they are doing. As you look there at verse 3, it says, It is as nothing to them. It is like this temple project is as nothing to them compared to the latter glory. But we see that they are despising this small thing, right? They are seeing it as nothing. And if you go to Zechariah chapter 4, it says to not despise the day of small things. And so the people are despising, despising the temple. They see it as small and seemingly insignificant. But we see in the mercy and grace of God, he comes to the people. And he does two things. He promises to be with them in this work. He promises to strengthen them for this work, for this commission. But he also promises a second thing, a greater and more glorious temple. That if you turn and look at the beginning part of um, verse 4, it says, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples. Work, for I am with you. This is the promise that the people will work if they will do this work that the Lord will be with them. He will be present with them. He will strengthen them to do this work of building the house of the Lord. It's almost as if God is saying, you may be tempted to see what you are doing as small and as insignificant, but I am in your midst and I am present in your very working. So the Lord promises to strengthen them for this work. But we see secondly in verse 9, that the Lord promises a greater and more glorious temple. He says that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. That Solomon's temple was, will look as nothing compared to the work that I am about to do. But what's interesting is that what makes this future house greater is kind of peculiar. If you look at verses 6 and 7, it says that he will not only shake the heavens and the earth, but it says that I will shake all nations so that the treasure of the nations may come in. That part of what makes this future temple that the Lord is going to build, what makes it more glory, is not that the riches of gold and silver are going to be brought in, but that the riches of the nations are going to be brought into this house of the Lord. It's very interesting to think about and contemplate. And we see in verse 9 that in this house, in this house to come, the Lord will give peace. The Lord will give ultimate, everlasting peace. And so we see the prophet pointing the people to the promises of the future kingdom of God and to a new and better temple. And that leads us to our second word this morning in verses 10 through 19. We see the promise of a new and better covenant. The promise of a new and better covenant. 
that in this word for, from the prophet, beginning in chapter 10, it, or verse 10, it begins with these kind of interesting questions. It's almost a quiz about old covenant law. And you might say, that might be the least thing I want to do this morning, right? That's the quickest way to um, check out is to have a quiz about old covenant law. But we see that the prophet is doing this for a reason. That these series of questions regarding the old covenant cleanliness laws that are found in the book of Leviticus, the prophet is going to use them to show the people their uncleanliness. That if any of you have read the book of Leviticus, you know, first of all, that there's a lot of laws in the book of Leviticus, right? If you've ever had to do that for your Bible reading plan, law after law after law, do this if you are unclean, do that if you are unclean in this way, law after law after law. But what those laws are communicating or meant to show us is that because of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the people, that in order to come before the Lord, everything must be holy. Everything must be holy. In order to be accepted by God, everything must be clean. And so in Haggai chapter 2, the Lord uses the law to show the people just how unclean they are. And he does it through these two questions. He does it through these two questions. In verse 12, he asks this question. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or any other food, does it become holy? Right? Just because they carry the meat that is made holy, does it make everything that they touch become holy? And the answer that the priests give is no. That is not how holiness is conveyed. It is not through indirect means, but it must be made holy. It must be purified. It must be cleansed directly. And so the, so the prophet asks another question. That if someone who is unclean touches any of these things, do they become unclean? Do those things now become unclean? And the answer is yes. That simply by touching something, if an unclean person touches something that is unclean, all becomes unclean, all becomes impure, all becomes defiled. As the Puritan John Gill said, pollution is more easily conveyed than holiness. (laughs) Pollution is more easily conveyed than holiness. And so the prophet uses these two questions as a parable to show the people not only their uncleanliness, but that everything that they touch is also unclean because they are unclean. And this includes the building of the temple. That even though God's glory would dwell in their midst because of the people's sin, because of their disobedience, it would be at a distance, right? It would only be through sacrifice and a mediator that this is pointing them to not only to their need of a greater temple, one where there would be no distance, but to a better covenant. That as we see in verse 17, even as these covenant curses are coming upon them, they still will not turn to the Lord. It says in verse 17, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. They instead harden their hearts in their sin. And do not turn to God. And this shows us that the sacrifices of the old covenant, while they could indeed purify the flesh outwardly, they could not cleanse the people inwardly. 
they could not purify their conscience. That the book of Hebrews chapter 10 is very clear that because the old covenant law was a shadow of the things to come, it could never make perfect those who draw near. That in fact, it was a regular reminder of the people's sin and of their uncleanliness. And so the people stood in need of a new and better covenant, not based on their holiness, but on the holiness of another. Not only purifying their flesh externally, but one that could purify their conscience inwardly. A greater temple, not built with unclean hands, but one whose hands are clean and whose heart was pure. And so the Haggai here is pointing them to their great need and these greater new covenant realities that just as the physical temple under the old covenant pointed to a greater temple and the promises of the new covenant, as we'll see in our third word from the prophet, Zerubbabel, who was a son of David, points to the true and better son of David, the eternal king of God's people. That brings us to our third point, the promise of a new and better king. That we see in verses 20 through 23, this promise of a new and better king. That this final word from the prophet Haggai, you'll notice that it's not to the people. This word is not addressed to the people. It's not addressed to the remnant, but it is rather addressed to Zerubbabel, who was this son of David. He was this kind of governor, kind of king of the people. And it's really fascinating. If you go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, verse 24, we read that Zerubbabel's grandfather was Jehoiakim, and he was the last king of Israel. And because of his sin, he was a thief and a traitor. Because of his sin, he is cast off and cursed. And the Lord says these words to Jehoiakim, though you were the signet ring on my hand, I will tear you off. That this is the curse of Jehoiakim's sin and treachery. That he is cast off and cursed. And so we get this broken line from the line of David. That these people would have remembered the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7. That someone would come from David's line that would be a king. That would sit, sit on his throne for all eternity. Ruling over God's house. But in the book of Haggai, there is no king. There is no ruler over God's people. The line from David has been broken. The people are oppressed by those around them. There's opposition without and within. The people are discouraged and their enemies seek to defeat them. And so the Lord comes to the people and speaks through the prophet Haggai and promises to redeem them. This almost second exodus. You see in verse 22, this language of overthrowing the chariots and the riders on the horses. This is all language that would refer to and remind them of God saving his people out of the first exodus, out of Egypt, out of the chariots of Pharaoh. And we see in verse 23, this promise of a new and better king. That there would be one that would come that would defeat their enemies. That in the face of opposition, this great mountain of world powers and persecution that's seeking to destroy the people of God, 
that a son of David will come forth that will lead the people, will level the opposition, and will exalt the seemingly lowly Mount Zion. This is what the Lord promises, pictured in Zerubbabel, who was a son of David. And he says, I will make you as a signet ring, referencing back to the curse of his grandfather, reversing the curse, this signet ring, this chosen one of the Lord, who will indeed build the house of the Lord, who will make the great mountain of opposition and turn it into a plain, who will lay the foundation and will complete the work, this great cosmic reversal. And so we see that throughout the book of Haggai, the Lord is using the language of the Old Testament to point to people to the realities of the New Testament that is to come. Their need for a better temple, a greater king, and a new covenant. The fulfillment of all the types and shadows in the Old Testament. And so at this point, hopefully some of you are foaming at the mouth saying, okay, these are great pictures, these are great promises, but what does it all mean? What, what is God promising in his word? What, what do all these pictures point toward? And that brings us to our fourth and final point, the fulfillment of all things in Christ. The fulfillment of all things in Christ. That as we come to the New Testament, we see that all of these types, all of these shadows, all of these promises and pictures find their great fulfillment Not in a physical temple, but in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we come to the New Testament, it becomes clear that the greater king, the better covenant, and the more glorious temple find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. That Christ is the true and better king of God's people. The one that was typified by Zerubbabel. As we sang this morning, the true and better son of David, the one that would sit on the Lord's throne eternally, the prophet, priest, and king of God's people. You could go to Matthew chapter 1 and see that Christ is not only in the line of David, but he is in the line of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. He is the true servant of the Lord, the chosen one by God, Isaiah 42, the signet ring, the cornerstone that is chosen and precious, that levels the mountain of our sin and guilt before a holy God, defeats Satan and all of our spiritual enemies, and will complete this house of the Lord, the church of the living God. That Christ is the true and better temple. As we read in the Gospel of John, he is the one that tabernacled among us. His body is the temple, the dwelling place of God on the earth. He is the one that will build the house of the Lord that will have a latter glory, a heavenly glory that is greater than any any earthly temple, any temple that Solomon built. The glory of this house will be greater than the former. That Christ is the cornerstone that was rejected by men, despised, beaten, stricken, afflicted, Seen as small and insignificant, yet, as First Peter says, he is now the chief cornerstone. The one that was despised and rejected is now the chief cornerstone. 
And he is the one pictured in Psalm 24 that we read this morning, who not only has clean hands and a pure heart, but is able to ascend the hill of the Lord. Christ is the King of glory. And this is only possible because Christ has secured a new and better covenant that is not based on the obedience of the people, but on his perfect righteousness, not earned by works, but earned by his free, infinite grace. That if you go to the book of Hebrews chapter 8, it says Christ has obtained a ministry much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better because it is enacted on better promises. That by the shedding of his perfect blood, Christ has inaugurated a new and better covenant that not only cleanses outwardly, but purifies the very conscience of his people. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14 says this, that if the blood of bulls and goats sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That if the blood of bulls and goats purified externally, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience? That in the perfect sacrifice of himself for unworthy sinners, Christ entered the heavenly temple, made without hands, sat down as our heavenly king upon his throne, administering the new covenant of grace and calling his redeemed people to himself, the riches of his inheritance in all the nations. And so as we turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we read it this morning that this glorious temple of God's redeemed people is pictured as a living temple, a spiritual house for God, where it is not physical sacrifices that are offered, but the offering up of spiritual worship by the Spirit. That if you just look in the handout this morning at Ephesians chapter 2, it says that, it says this, so then, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. By the Spirit, that Christ has laid the foundation and he will indeed complete it. That this is the temple's greater glory promised in the book of Haggai and brought to fulfillment in Christ and his church. And so as we begin to apply this book and contemplate and think about what this means for us, three things that we need to consider this morning. Three things that we need to consider this morning. The first one is this, that Christ himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. That in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord promises that in this house that he's going to build, he will give peace. And we live in a world today that is desperate for peace and for rest, right? 
We live in a world where there are wars and rumors of wars. There are civil unrest. There is division among nations, division among families, even within homes. That as we sang about this morning, there's even division within Christ's church. Heresies that seek to come in and undermine the truth. Schisms that divide the body of Christ. Sin among brothers and sisters that threaten the unity and peace of Christ's church. And this is all because of sin. Sin divides. Sin separates. Sin keeps us from communion and fellowship with God. And so we need peace. We need peace with God. And what does the book of Ephesians tell us? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 says, Christ himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. Haggai promised in this house I will give peace. Paul tells us that that's only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the reason we have peace with God. He speaks to his people in the gospel of peace. He is the place where God will give ultimate rest, ultimate peace, to his people. No earthly institution can accomplish this. No earthly solution can do this work. It is only Christ and his new creation redeemed people and in him. And what's so amazing is that Paul uses this in Ephesians chapter 4, says because you are the temple of the Lord, you are to live in this way. There's this movement from the indicative of what Christ has done in building his people to the imperative of how we are to live. And in Ephesians chapter four, he says, therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Listen to these words. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That God's people, because we are the temple of God, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, there's an imperative for us. We are to live in this way. We are to live with all humility and gentleness and patience with our fellow brothers and sisters, bearing with one another in love and desiring to maintain the unity of the body, of the Spirit, in the bond of the peace that Christ has purchased for us, that because we are the temple, these new creations in Christ, we are to walk in this way, fighting for this unity and peace that Christ has purchased. But the second thing we need to see this morning is that we can be tempted, like the people in the book of Haggai, to despise the day of small things. We can be tempted, like the people in the book of Haggai, to despise the day of small things. That just as they were tempted to despise the work of their hands and the building of the house of the Lord, how often can we be tempted to do the same? Maybe the church doesn't seem to be growing as we thought it would. Maybe our own Christian maturity feels slow and insignificant. We look back on our lives and we can't seem to see any big growth in our lives. It seems small. It seems unimpressive. The church doesn't seem to be growing. Our progress in the faith seems as nothing. And we can become discouraged as the people were disappointed in the growth that we see. But as Zechariah chapter 4 says, we're not to despise the day of small things. We are not to despise the day of small things, that even though the church 
seem small and insignificant, even though our growth in sanctification can sometimes feel like it's non-existent, the Lord promises to work not in an externally glorious way, but inwardly making his people into the image of Christ, this glorious work of the triune God, giving us new hearts with new desires that we might live for him by the Spirit. So Christ himself is our peace. We are not to despise the day of small things. But thirdly and finally, we'll see that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That we live in a world, this side of heaven, where everything can be taken away from us. We can lose our job and our source of income to unemployment or recession. We could lose our home and our possessions to fire or disaster. We could lose our health to cancer, to sickness, to disease. We could lose a loved one to, or a family member to death or tragedy. We could even lose our own life and lose everything that we have and have it taken away from us. And I think this is a sobering thought for us this morning. That we are so often tempted to live for this world and the things of this world, building up our own house and neglecting the things of God. But as the author of Hebrews brings his book to a close, he grounds his final argument, his final warning to the people and his final gospel promise in the same reality. And it's the reality of God's coming judgment and the shaking of all things. That the book of Hebrews quotes from Haggai chapter 2. It's the only place in the New Testament that quotes the book of Haggai. And we read it this morning in our confession of sin. And the writer to the book of Hebrews gives a sober warning to the people and to us gathered today in this room. That if the people of Israel did not escape God's judgment when he warned them from heaven, when he shook the earthly Mount Sinai, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? That we see in the book of Haggai this promise that the Lord will once and more shake the earth and the heavens, that everything that can be shaken will be. At the Lord's return, the old creation, everything that is marred by sin and death will be shaken, will be destroyed. That which is made will be brought to nothing. And this truth is a sober warning for us and for the world. That our world that seeks to value comfort, earthly status, physical and temporary beauty and worldly pleasures The writer to the book of Hebrews says these things will all pass away. They will be as nothing. But this same truth that is a warning to the unbelieving world is actually the foundation of God's gospel promise and the assurance and unshakable confidence that God's people have in what have been given in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the kingdom that we have received in Christ the writer to Hebrews says, cannot be shaken. That what we have received cannot be shaken. He says in verse 28, 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that the kingdom we have received in Christ, the very kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God that has begun in the already and will be consummated on the last day is a kingdom that cannot be shaken because it is not of this creation. It is of the new creation that Christ has worked in our hearts and will consummate at the end of all things. What we have received is unshakable, is permanent and is eternal. As one theologian said, it cannot be changed, nor can it ever pass away because it is made not by imperfect human hands, but by God's hand as a new creation. It is unshakable. An inheritance, as Peter will say, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That this doesn't mean we can't enjoy God's good gifts. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy the beauty of God's creation and the good things that he's given us. But it places it in its proper place. That we cannot see those things as in and of themselves. But they are to point us to Christ and the one who has given us all things. And so may we do what the writer to the book of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaking. And then he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship, not earthly sacrifices at an earthly temple, but the spiritual living sacrifices of our own body, which Paul says is our spiritual act of worship accepted in the heavenly temple. And he says, let us do this with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's remember that as we close this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. That as we saw in the book of Haggai, that we, like the people, we try to build our own house. We labor in vain. That the work of our hands, apart from Christ, will will come to nothing. It is vain. It is unclean. And it is not lasting. But the work that you are doing through Christ and your church and the proclamation of the gospel is the work that will last forever. It is unshakable that as you go through your people proclaiming the gospel to all nations, we see the riches that you have promised welcome into your temple, the nations of every tribe and tongue and people. And as we come together to worship you this morning, Lord, we stand in all of you. We stand in all of what you have done for us in Christ. That everything that was promised in the Old Testament finds its yes and amen in Christ. And so this morning, may we worship you for what you have done, not only in creating us, but in redeeming us by your Son. Knowing that you will sustain us, that the work that you have begun, you will complete it that you will lose none from your hand, and that at the last day, as you bring about your new creation, your redeemed people, pictured as a heavenly temple, coming down out of heaven, adorned as a bride for her husband, we will worship you for all eternity, where there will be no mourning, no crying, no death, and no tears. 
And we look forward to that day, Lord. So we, we pray, come, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for heaven and we long for your new creation. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.